Future of Finance podcast, where finance finds its future. Hello, everybody. I'm Dominic Hobson, co-founder of Future of Finance, and I'm delighted to moderate our discussion this afternoon on why the law is such a compelling use case for AI and what law firms are doing about it. Artificial intelligence, or AI, despite its technical limitations, and we're talking not about emulations of the human brain, but about giant data-eating machines, it's increasingly everywhere, in our motor cars, our telephones, even in some cases in our refrigerators. And professions based upon the mastery of arcane areas of knowledge or techniques might be thought to be immune to being devoured by giant data-eating machines. But it's increasingly apparent that they are not. And the law of all things has emerged as an early use case for consumption, an hors d'oeuvre perhaps before generalized AI machines reduced the whole of humanity to helots. Law in the end amounts to, like so much else in our civilization, to information. And much of that information is now available in digital form, which means it can be copied instead of consumed, and it can be copied at zero or near zero marginal cost. So the question before us, it seems, is not whether the law in its present state is doomed, it is, say the AI evangelists, but how soon we will be able to judge the value of the legal advice we receive, not by the billable hours in the invoice, but by the size of our electricity bill. Now, to help us understand how the law is adapting to this prospect, I'm joined by two lawyers and an expert in AI. Nigel Brook is a partner at London law firm Clyde & Co, where he specializes in international insurance and reinsurance, but he's also worked on smart contracts, blockchain, the Internet of Things, and other technologies since 2015. Nigel is co-founder of Clyde Code, the smart contracts consultancy offering of the firm. Nathan Evans is a partner at Harrison Clark Rickabies, where he focuses on technology law. He's also a member of the Outsourcing Group Committee at the Society for Computers and Law. Francisco Weber is co-founder and CEO of Cortical.io, which is trying to move AI technology beyond computational statistics of the type I just described, and actually enable machines to read paperwork and even unstructured text like emails as natural language. In addition to our panelists, we do also have you, of course, our audience, and all of us encourage everybody watching or listening to submit questions and comments throughout this webinar by using the functionality at the bottom of your Zoom screens. Uh, I won't be saving any questions or comments up to the end, but we will endeavor to address them as we go along so you can be an integral part of this discussion right from the outset. But I'd like to begin uh, by asking our two lawyers how they are using AI in their practice today. And my starting point for this is when I was researching this topic, I kept sort of list uh, of uses of AI in the law that I came across. And I built up a list of 16 uh, separate things, uh, classifying documents, uh, assembling documents, uh, even reading documents for those key terms and key clauses uh, inside them, comparing documents with uh, historical precedents, contract management, searching documents for information. So there a lot of uh, combing through uh, uh, documents. So perhaps Nathan, I could come to you first. Um, how is your firm actually using AI in the business today? Well, like all law firms, we are exploring this. Um, I would say that we're probably in the early stage of our early stages of our explanation. Um, looking at the list of sixteen that you put together, <laughs> I was quite discouraged. That I could only really tick two. Um, but then I have a lot of colleagues. We have eight hundred odd colleagues, and maybe I don't know everything. But you know, we we are using outsourced AI technologies to scan millions of emails in multiple languages to gather data for specific dispute resolution cases. Of course. 
we're exploring whether we can use AI for contract reviews and analysis as part of corporate DD, and that's probably the biggest thing that we're exploring right now. I guess those technologies is a more subset of AI in terms of machine learning and that that type of technology that we're using that for. But I suppose what I'm most interested in is the things that we're not using it for. Um, so if there are any sales persons out there that want to talk to me, <laughs> I would love to be using it for horizon scanning on topics of interest to my clients and data gathering to predictive analytics to um, predict the trends that my clients are going through, what type of agreements they're going to need when they get to certain scales and all of these things that I don't have the data to understand myself. So I can map out my business case going forward as a partner of a, of a, of a large law firm. Um, possibly sentimental analysis, but also in the business of running a law firm, you know, there are some AI technologies which are fantastic for bolstering your own cybersecurity. So, you know, although arguably maybe some AI technologies are detrimental to cybersecurity, there are many which are absolutely fabulous and can help you run your business in a more efficient and effective way. Um, also, I'm aware of my own massive personality traits. I've got loads of them. We've all got unconscious biases and all sorts of things. And I would love to explore you develop you using AI to you know scan CVs to get rid of all my unconscious biases so I can digest these documents and understand them properly without applying my own unnecessary <laughs> idiocy on some of these things. Um, but that that that's me. Um, no doubt, like <laughs> Nigel's firm's doing a bit more. I suspect. Well, Nigel, it's very interesting listening to Nathan that actually he's not interested in AI solely in order to do it being done already more efficiently in a more automated fashion, actually looking to expand the business, make it more mm. effective, turn it into a sort of client advisory uh, mm. business apart from anything else. Are, are you thinking the same way or are you just using it to read these, these documents? Yeah, it's, uh, it is interesting. We're, that's our direction of travel. Um, we're at the moment using it much more functionally. So like every other law firm, we're using it for litigation, for discovery, um, collating millions of documents. It's, um, that is now routine and that there's quite a, a range of tools now um, so we can choose the, the most appropriate tool for the, for the appropriate case. Um, we're, a lot of what we do is for insurance, about half our practice is servicing insurance and we do have quite a large practice that does volume work, motor and, and household claims, where <clears throat> again we're using AI, uh, beginning to use it um, to, to make that whole process a lot more efficient. And also, though, and this is another key element, to give management information back to clients. Uh, we're also then pushing that into aviation and other sectors because we can spot trends um, at scale. If we have, we have hundreds of thousands of cases that we're handling, so we can actually spot trends and deliver that information back to the clients, uh, which is what they're hungry for. Uh, and we are using it to... Uh, creates products, so it's not just service, uh, but, but actually a product that the, the insurers can buy on a subscription, um, optimizing uh, things through the use of AI. Though AI, of course, um, comes a multitude of sins. It, it can be something pretty basic, right through to something um, much more sophisticated, um, using uh, machine learning in the full sense. But um, so some of this will be fairly basic AI uh, applications. Um, language, natural language processing, and so on. But uh, also, we're, we're developing tools to develop uh, to predict the outcome cases. A lot of the um, tools that are available out of the box, like Kira and so on, are optimized for things like uh, reading leases. 
uh, things for transactional work. For litigation, there's, there's um, fewer tools readily available today. And so we, we are bespoking the, the uh, existing tools for that purpose. I assume that there will be more attention paid in the next few years by AI providers to this area, because about 70% of what we do is, is litigation. So that's, we are very, very keen to, to uh, use AI as best we can. So again, if, uh, if you're looking into this area and listening in, let us know. Well, I, was, I was actually very um, pleased to note that actually on my list of 16 was uh, using it to assess the advisability of, of litigation in terms Indeed. of costs and chances of success, but also yeah. using the data to, to predict the outcome of, of court cases. And you found yeah. it effective in those two fields, have you? Yeah, well, beginning to do so. Um, there's been some terrific work done on this. Um, even, even I think it's about four years ago, um, some researchers used this to uh, European Court of Human Rights cases. They found they were getting about 70% um, success in predicting the outcomes of cases there. Um, after feeding in, after feeding in the, the personal biases that Nathan referred to of the judges. Exactly <laughs> right. Exactly right. These, are, these cases aren't decided by robots. And, uh, yeah. So who knows? One day they might be. Yeah. Anyway, I'd like to come back to you too about, about whether you can use it for, for getting costs under control in a minute. So if you could think about that while I ask Francisco um, a question, which is um, legal documents tend to be uh, I was about to say well drafted, but on the whole, uh, legal documents are better drafted than than other types of documents. So you would have thought that's one of the reasons that AI works for this. Um, but you've also heard Nigel mention about natural language unstructured processing. What's your um, take on the application of AI to these mountains of data, which uh, lawyers work through every day? Yeah, I mean, you uh, already said it, uh, for someone uh, who works in the domain of uh, um, using language as the uh, main uh, sort of objective, uh, I have to say I love legal language. I mean, it's like made for machine learning. Um, as you said, it's uh, very uh, clean material, typically. Um, it's um, astonishingly accessible in terms of uh, you can basically find uh, the legal code of any any country uh, online and you can uh, download it uh, uh, maybe even as XML data and so on. But beyond that, uh, I would say specifically because we focus um, a lot on uh, semantics. Uh, so we try to go beyond um, anything which would be like searching for words and matching words, which is a, a very primitive way of doing, uh, which actually makes legal language um, sort of problematic for those earlier technologies. Because if you have nothing than the statistics of word uh, to characterize what a document means, um, then you will have a problem with, let's say, contracts, because uh, if you make a list of words used per document, you probably end up having like always the same words in every document. And it's more sort of like how they are put there. Um, on the other hand, um, if you uh, rather work uh, with semantics, um, basically everybody from the lawmaker uh, uh, back to the, to the lawyer um, everybody thinks like 10 times before they write something. So they try um, actively to be non-ambiguous or unambiguous 
um, and to be very explicit about what this meant and so on, which is sort of perfect if you want to precisely. Uh, I, I mean, it sounds typically for a non-lawyer, uh, legal text um, has sort of an aspect of being complex, but in reality, it's if you are a lawyer, it's 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 comparatively uh, simple language in the sense of it's 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 very straightforward to figure out what things actually mean. Um, and so um, I think it's uh, therefore uh, a natural consequence that that area has one has been one of the earliest uh, to become a field of work for uh, people who do machine learning because it is that prototypical. Um, and uh, so I think that's also the domain where we will see the first um, effects of that uh, early work. Uh, meaning uh, having, in fact, um, powerful tools. And there are uh, a lot of tools out there. Uh, it's still, I would say, first generation because, in fact, when you get a, get a legal tool, what you actually get is a legal model yeah, with some software around it to make it, in, to, to, to allow you to interact with it. Um, but basically, you license models. And this, to me, is sort of a more primordial stage. I think, in the end, um, the solutions will be of the kind that the specialist himself uh, can actually create the model. That's where we need to go. Uh, and that's basically when, when uh, uh, it, we will have things like uh, Word uh, for lawyers with the typical kind of intelligence uh, that is needed. Yeah. You use the term semantics, by which you mean what things mean. Mm -hmm. And of course, we appoint lawyers because we want in our contracts, for example, to be absolutely clear what, what we mean. It's quite difficult to achieve that. And they've developed this, uh, this special language to, to make things as, as, as clear as, as, as possible. And again, that's something which, from what you were saying, makes the law in one sense amenable to AI, but in another sense, less amenable. So which I, I think I heard you say both those things. Which is it? Is it? Is it is the law ideally suited to AI, or does its quest for perfect meanings make it more difficult? So, as as someone who is working to um, um, sort of enter a new kind of AI in terms of two aspects, one uh, precisely about not learning the data but learning the semantics of the data. That is one aspect that uh, we focus on, um, and the second is to make it efficient. Uh, because in the end, um, any or close to any algorithm, given enough time and given enough computing resources, uh, can find out uh, how things work. Uh, the problem is, uh, is an algorithm doing this uh, within two minutes or uh, 15,000 years uh, and therefore waiting for a quantum computer uh, to try again? So that's, the, I think, the big question for that kind of uh, solution to be actually deployed as a commodity, which I think uh, it should be at some point. Well, we'll talk about the cost of 15,000 years and computing power in a minute. But before we do, perhaps, uh, as I said a minute ago, Nathan and Nigel, I'd be interested in whether you see AI as a means of, of getting costs under control in your firm. Obviously, having very highly trained, highly talented people working in your firm and you're selling their time, that's, that, that's what makes the law expensive. Is there a way in which you can actually use AI? Have you thought about this to, to lower fees? Either you, you can give work to less qualified people who can work with the machine uh, more successfully. Maybe you can even start to do things like ask yourself the question, well, is this piece of work actually worth doing 
for this client at this price? Is it worth our while doing it? Is it sufficiently profitable for us? Um, do you are you thinking about AI in that way, Nigel? Yes, we are. Uh, AI in combination with um, project management. So, for example, for certain kinds of litigation we're doing, we're beginning to atomize the process from getting the instruction to to the trial, breaking down the various stages. <clears throat> this would be for mainly for costs purposes to try to keep costs under control looking at hundreds of cases and working out what are the stages where things can go off the rails, it can become more expensive than you originally anticipated, or where there are opportunities to save costs. It may be, for example, you say, this is a stage where we don't actually need a very senior team on it. We can delegate this down. We might be able to automate some of this. Maybe the clients with their own resources can help us out at this stage and so on. So th this is nothing new. Th th this has been done before, but we're, we're applying this now to, to the various kinds of cases we do. And that should enable us to give a much more accurate cost estimate and to control the costs as we go along. Also, there's this idea of using AI at the various recognized stages in the case to access the, the appropriate resources. At this stage, it'd be useful to have a, a database of relevant precedents. Um, and part of this, of course, uh, it's, it's technology is not 100% solution to any of this. It, it does take um, a lot of movement from the lawyers involved as well, a lot of engagement. So it would be, first of all, getting past the mindset that every case is bespoke, every case is a one-off. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm an artisan. Oh. Approach. Uh, and actually recognising that actually what you're going through now probably has been done hundreds of times before, and there are lessons to be learned here. Yep. Using AI to access those resources, the, the precedents, or putting in touch with the right person to consult at that stage. <coughs> those kind of things, those are the kind of use cases we're looking at. So, Nathan, 70% of your business is not litigation, I assume. So, you're, no, it's you're a different type no. of law firm, but cost reduction? You well, think I think, I think there's. I think there's there's two costs to to my business. There's there's the cost that the client sees, so that's the fees they pay that going out the door. And increasingly, there's a lot of pressure on those costs. So you might find that, I don't know, as part of a corporate DD, a client is unwilling or doesn't want to review a whole suite of documents because the cost of doing that would be too high. And then we can say, okay, well, okay, well, we, we've identified these contracts as being relatively low value, low risk. We'll run that through the AI. You can have that as a value add. Or a fixed fee whatever it might be the secondary cost i think is in rehiring the people you lose by giving them repetitive work and not completely getting rid of that i'm not saying we, we get we totally get rid of that work but reducing the burden of doing that work is beneficial from us as an employer I think, and it and it and it, and it helps it helps our associates develop. Whereas they're they're reviewing the work of the machines rather than doing the work of the machines, and then reviewing the work of the machines, and I review the work that they do. I think it makes for a more rounded lawyer, and I think that there's a lot of benefits to deploying the technologies. And I don't think that this spells the doom of the lawyer. Far from it. I think it frees us up to do things that we should be doing and that's advising is at a strategic level so you know outside the conversation of ai there's a whole host and suite of technologies that we should be using not least of all contract automation and drafting assisting tools that that that, that i use quite frequently to drive down costs and it's there's a few reasons for it i think there's, there's going to be as i say there's, there's pressure on fees generally but there's also pressure on the time materials model that we deploy 
and we need to start thinking quite um, creatively about how we cost the work that we do going forward because clients expect it. Will we one day get to the customer self-help tool? We may already be there. Mm-hmm. We may already be there um, because you know there, there are solutions that, that, that certainly my practice works with where you know you can take quite detailed instructions and code quite complicated contracts that can apply in a multiple different scenarios that they can go through a questionnaire and they can be relatively comfortable that the document that is spat out at the other end is going to be correct for that for that use case um, and you run that as I don't know law as a service I guess mm-hmm. now that's I'm not I mean, it's a bit off topic, I guess, because I wouldn't see that as an AI technology. That's a that, that's a that's a more simply simplified coding technology. But they 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 do work together. Um, and then going back to Francisco's comment about you know the investment in time it takes to to, to train the AI, so I couldn't agree more with that. I think a lot of lawyers do um, anticipate that when the software lands on their desk and they open the box, out pops this solution that's going to work. Doesn't work. Never works because the document scanning software, for example, might pull out five different clauses within a document that has something to do with capping liability, all of them wrong. And you have to tell the machine and train the machine and then over time it will develop itself. So um, this isn't, this, 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 there's, no, there's no silver bullet here, I don't think. Unless it might, it might be cheaper than itself. sending everybody to university and, and then having them do long apprenticeships inside the firm, no? <laughs> <laughs> No, I, I, you know, I'm happy to be absolutely wrong, but I think that clients still like to have the human touch and human interaction that goes along with this. And what they're looking for is law firms to deploy technology in a way that mm-hmm. streamlines and makes the work that we do more efficient. I don't think. I'm going to ask Francisco this question in a minute about about the cost. I mean, did the, the actual cost of the AI itself, when you when you first invested in this machine and started training it, was that a, a barrier or not? Um, yeah, currently it is uh, still a barrier because uh, we have uh, not yet the kind of base technology that we would want to have. I mean, uh, I think the AI companies are the uh, first ones who actually would need AI precisely to create uh, training sets properly. I mean, that's kind of a very meticulous uh, type of work. Um, uh, and, and once uh, you have entered uh, uh, some wrong records uh, in your training collection, you never find them again. So you have to be very careful uh, on what you do. Um, but I think that uh, in general, um, the legal industry will evolve very similar to most of the other industries um, that, that we've seen so far, uh, is that uh, they need to become more efficient, they need to automate uh, and by uh, and through automation, there will be a quite substantial number of tasks that will shift to other places. Yeah. So, uh, for example, um, today, uh, and I mean that might be a, a quite a quite a superficial view, but uh, remember, remember, I'm not a, a lawyer myself. So. Uh, sort of a lot of uh, uh, the, the the actual work ends up uh, being done uh, by paralegals, for example, the kind of heavy work that needs the heavy lifting in, in the whole thing. And all the limitations and the whole business model of legal industry uh, basically relates to that number of paralegals. So uh, for certain types of cases, uh, it depends on how much you can afford. 
according to this, you can choose um, a, a law firm that has, let's say, a huge infrastructure for doing research work and stuff like that. Uh, and that puts you in the end uh, in a legally stronger position. Um, but uh, in a world where uh, the paralegal is uh, sort of uh, replaced by an automatic procedure that doesn't care if it has to uh, sift through uh, a million documents or uh, a billion documents, uh, that distinction uh, will not be there. Uh, and that, I think, will affect even the business model that you encounter. Suddenly, uh, you could find um, a, a very small law firm capable due to the way they use their AI, let's say, uh, to handle large and complex cases with sort of the same power as a big law firm. Um, so I think that will be um, one level of or one earlier level of change. Um, later on, I'm, I'm pretty sure that um, beyond the pure uh, fact checking and fact searching uh, tasks, there will be um, a lot of strategic tasks that are currently precisely done by the lawyer that will be uh, automated. And in the end, or let's say my uh, hopefully positive vision of the a fully automated future is that humans will mostly remain at the interfaces. So at the interface from the legal system to the customer, who typically is a human, you will also need to put a human in order to do an, an adequate communication. And the task of the lawyer probably more becomes um, how to educate, inform, uh, handle um, the customer. Uh, because the strategy will be generated based on the completeness of fact that have been taken into account. Yeah. That's an interesting point which, uh, which Francisco made there about how this technology can actually make smaller firms competitive with larger ones. You don't have to be Clifford Chance with offices everywhere and hundreds of partners in order to be competitive for very quite complex pieces of, of business. Um, I, I, I was wondering, Nigel, whether whether you you think that um, th this makes you more competitive, perhaps even outside the fields in which you specialize, like trade and, and insurance and the litigation involved in those cases. Are you are you seeing this actually as a competitive weapon against um, other well, we're a large we're a large law firm. And I, I do see the threat. I think in certain sectors there is a threat there. Uh, we saw a demonstration two or three years ago about a, a bankruptcy tool where you can ask, put in a bankruptcy question. It was, this has been trained on federal law, huh? but um, you were able to put in a natural language question and, and get a what looked for all the world like an attorney memo back to, to our pages of analysis, case law and, and um, conclusion. Um, quite spooky. And that will only improve over time. Huh? Um, now, of course, you would not just give that to the client and say that there we are, that's the law, but it, but it, does at least put you at a, at a big advantage that you you can take that as a starting point. As even a small law firm that doesn't have that kind of depth of knowledge of that area, and I can see that developing over time as so you have access to these um, rather smart resources at, at a much lower cost. Where the large law firms may still have an advantage for the time being, and I'm not saying this is a permanent. Um, inherent advantage is the data sets. So if you do handle tens of thousands of a certain kind of thing, and you have access to materials and, and data points that aren't available in the public domain, then that, that means you could um, retain an advantage there. Perhaps that extra level of sophistication you get in 
for example, predicting the outcome of a case. Or you're, you're, you're basically training your, you're training your AI to kind of absorb your experience. Yes. So, uh, it. It, so if you were, I don't know, you specialize in your case in, in, in insurance, but maybe it could be private equity, mm. for example. And yeah. the more private equity deals, like the more insurance deals you see, probably like the more bad marriages you see, mm. get better. Your advice is because it's based on experience. You, somehow you've got to translate that experience into the machine. Yes. And it's taking what at the moment is tacit knowledge. It's, uh -huh. it's the fruit of experience um, and systematizing that. And of course, that's what a lot of firms would like to do is just create a kind of hive mind where you've taken the whole firm's tacit knowledge out of people's heads and into a system. Um, if this were possible, uh, and uh, so that it was accessible to all. Now, of course, that therein lies the seeds of your destruction as well, because that system, if it's kept up to date, could then replace uh, those ones. This, um, but I think perhaps we um, just pass a challenge for Francisco that we take for granted the, the kind of common sense angle to this. That, for example, I can draft a contract, but is is that the right contract for this particular client? or this particular department of this particular client, given their history, given what I know about how they came to this position, that problem they had five years ago, and so on. So the, the, um, the kind of things which are tacit, but very, very hard to put down and systematize, that they're one-offs. Um, there's, there's that human element uh, and how things are done around here. Uh, a lot of, you can try to systematize your own tacit knowledge, but you haven't done the same for your clients tacit knowledge yeah I, a lot I, of these areas which will be hard to to uh, put into ai i i do agree i think uh, in the um, upcoming automated future um, everything will be about culture because that's mm. actually the human domain yes. um, and uh, there is culture in everything yeah so even in drafting laws there is culture sort of mm. uh, therefore uh, whenever information goes from one individual to the other, it has to pass that cultural interface. Uh, and I think that will be mostly uh, the work of the future, uh, that uh, someone has an expertise in some domain uh, and then becomes a cultural interface uh, to access or connect to other systems uh, so that they can work uh, in a cluster. Yeah. So. Um, and, and yeah, so it's 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 kind of a, a very new kind of, of work, I think, uh, but not less uh, interesting or challenging. I mean, yeah, we will all have uh, sociology and uh, pedagogy uh, in school as part of the basic education. I like this term uh, tacit knowledge. It reminds me of uh, a sort of problem in information theory where um, uh, and, and it's interesting that, that communism, for example, has come back into fashion recently. Books have been published saying, well, if Walmart can stop the shelves on time uh, using machines, why can't we eradicate poverty uh, uh, by using AI as well? And I think the, the piece which is missing is that is that tacit knowledge. No matter how much information you gather into your machine, you're never really going to fully understand what happens at the periphery. In it, That's the, the tacit knowledge that, that Nigel is, is referring to. So there probably are limits to to how much of the how much of the lawyer can be replaced by by a machine in the end and until we get to some sort of general ai in which case we're all doomed i suppose <laughs> but but i think long before we have the general ai we will have uh when there is something like the expertise a human can have to teach a machine 
uh, that process itself can be modeled and automated. Yeah? Mm. So, uh, so there is this kind of incremental um, um, improvement on the layers also that I think will uh, accelerate things uh, dramatically. Mm -hmm. uh, Nathan, we, we've talked about AI as if it means one thing and we all understand what that thing is. But one of the things Nigel mentioned a few minutes ago was that these sort of oracles, you can put a bankruptcy question into basically into Google and it gives you some sort of answer back. <coughs> Those machines are bound to get better. So they remind me of, of the sort of neural networks, which we talked about 20, 25 years ago, where your doctor would become, you'd describe your symptoms and it would give you a course of pills to, to put it right. So there's lots of different components here in AI. One is the machine learning, which, we, which we've really been talking about teaching your machines to be better lawyers. But there's also automating processes. There are processes in law as there are in everything else, I suppose, and you can kind of automate those. Um, there's quite a lot of data science in this. Mm -hmm. and, um, uh, and we used to talk about expert systems as well. Maybe that's the right term for what Nigel was describing. But, um, you know, do you, you're a member of the, the society, um, law and the computer, as fascinated you, 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 you're, you're in this outsourcing group. Does that mean lawyers are starting to think about putting together different pieces of knowledge from different areas, different sets of data to create a whole new business, really? I guess the, the, the outsourcing group in the SEL is a, is a collaborative space for commercial lawyers who practice the same type of law, that being large-scale mm -hmm. commercial outsourcing pieces. So we do, we do come across multiple deals, I suppose, where the clients, typically savvy IT clients, are deploying robotic process automation. We we typically advise on the appropriate warranties and remedies and all these sorts of things. That, I that, see. That, so the clients are advising, that. not lawyers, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. It, it, but it, I suppose the, the wider question is, well, do we care what flavor of AI we're using as part of our business? And to simplify this, I think my answer to that is probably no, I'm, I'm, I'm more outcomes driven than tech driven. So for example, I would ask the same question, well, do I care that I call this machine learning over AI or as a subset of AI? No, in the same way that I don't necessarily need to use blockchain for the sake of it being a blockchain. I just, I just care about what the output is. So there, there, are, there are problems which I'm trying to solve. Some of those problems are quite helpfully solved by AI, whether it's robotic process automation or whether it's machine learning, it doesn't really, as a, as a, as a consumer of technology, it doesn't really matter to me. You know, Francisco may violently disagree with me on that, no. and, it does, <laughs> and it doesn't matter. All right, but, 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 in, but, it, but in terms of being a commercial lawyer and whether I'm an outsourcing practitioner or not, the things which will help my day-to-day -day life will be um, easier and more manageable tools for drafting contracts that take the stress out of compiling tailored bespoke agreements which i think that as a firm hcr are already doing a good job at that and driving down efficiencies and costs on that um, and then the work that we've already discussed which is the the document review piece um, as part of corporate due diligence and those are really the two things that i tend to focus on mm. um, and then th there will be as i said earlier at the, the top of the call th th there will be i guess educational pieces driven by ai which will be helpful for me in terms of horizon scanning, predefining where my clients are going to be in the next 10 years based on where they've been 
um, would, would, would help me, not, not in terms of just resourcing, but advising them as, what, as to what type of agreements and deals they might be looking at into the future and they should start thinking about earlier rather than later, then they'll get there quicker. Mm -hmm. um, Nigel, does, does, uh, is, there, is it possible for AI will actually create new forms of, of legal knowledge? We, you know, we've talked a lot about the, the benefits of this in terms of um, making it cheaper and more accessible, raising the quality and so on. But is it, is it, could it actually add something to the law? Could it just read through reams of data and come up with great new insights which you could apply on behalf of your clients? I think it could, in principle. I've not seen it happen yet, but I could see in principle how it could happen. They're, like in other domains, that there's, there's a def, distinctive limit to the amount of information that any of us can absorb. And uh, we've got such a fire hose of data now. If you had a system that could ingest a, a huge amount of data and apply ultra-sophisticated um, uh, technology to that, it might find, may very well find patterns that aren't um, available to us. Uh, there's, there's examples from other domains where um, you've got um, superhuman um, outputs, like for example, um, the uh, scan of the retina um, can uh, the system and MI uh, can actually tell you um, what gender that the, the person is. And um, eye experts who've, who've looked at this image cannot work out what signals um, the, the system is picking up there. So I, I can imagine there could be things like that where they, they can see through in a way that, that we can't. Um, uh, which would be quite scary um and but also law is um it's human created uh, they, these are principles that have been they're, they're not there's nothing um natural about them and, and as we see from the variety of legal systems around the world uh, and it may be able to come up with better systems of law as well if you if you get some understanding of what you're trying to accomplish maybe they'll find um better ways of doing this, or better ways of contracting, for example, to achieve what the parties want to achieve. Yeah, I think that's a, a, a potential, in fact. Uh, so far, we have been talking on uh, the industry as being attached to a legal body or a legal uh, or a law, basically. Mm -hmm. uh, but what if uh, one would apply uh, AI techniques to actually generate law? Mm -hmm. um, because I think from a from an abstract point of view, it's uh, law is about uh, managing the the human nature with the human culture given sort of and mm. make that uh, make make rules uh, about how we uh, operate naturally. So that's typically a domain I think that can be uh, mathematically or logically um, accessed, and that's something that you can actually model using computers. Um, but the, the tedious part of the work is to make it compatible with the humans. Uh, that's why you have things like politics and people mm -hmm. discussing uh, about laws. Uh, but uh, if they would discuss a model that can be guaranteed to be consistent, for example, because it has been checked uh, and created mm -hmm. uh, by, an, by a logical system, yeah. uh, and then you discuss what could that be in, in real-world terms. Yeah. Do we, I, I totally do we, agree. Uh, do, okay, Nathan, do you, do you think we that the society would be comfortable on Francisco's point with machines as opposed to judges, and they're called judges because they make judgments, 
about complex moral issues, euthanasia, child custody, and so on, if, if it was made by this logical machine rather than this flesh and blood judge with their personal biases of the type you've recommended, could we get comfortable with that as a, as a society? And which prompts a, a couple of other thoughts in my mind about if we're relying on machines to, to make legal decisions, you know, what if the advice is duff? Who are you going to sue when the machine gives you incompetent <laughs> advice? What about all this data which is which you're consuming, documents and um, personal details and so on? You know, how secure are these AI platforms uh, when they're processing this this data? Um, and I wonder if it starts to create sort of inequalities. You know, people who can afford access to AI versus people who who can't. The law should be everyone should be equal before the law, or at least in principle, if not always in practice. So. I know the old joke about the law being open to everyone, so is the Ritz, but in principle, that's the, you know, the honour is in the, in the breach as well as the observance, I suppose. My God, I'm in the wrong profession and job, if I can answer that. <laughs> that's an incredibly difficult question. I think at a higher level, I think the point of the law is to apply the societal contract in an even and equitable way across society and I think that AI can be a useful tool tool in assisting that. I personally would be uncomfortable with a machine deciding on cases of the type that you described mm -hmm. where I feel that there needs to be a human element of that and the judges in this country are well renowned at exercising <clears throat> their discretion and humanity when appropriate to do so and from my perspective, I'd like things to stay the way they are. Well, there's an example in the States. There's a tool that's been developed, it's been deployed now by a number of states for several years to help. The aim was quite a noble one, which is to help with get more consistent sentencing. Mm -hmm. But of course, what the data is relying on is how cases with similar facts have been sentenced in the past by fallible judges. So what you're doing then is ingesting, ingesting uh, fallible data with biases uh, all over the place mm. and then spewing that out. And the problem, of course, is not so much that it's doing that, but that is problematic. It's the idea that it, it, it appears like an oracle. Oh, well, the system says two years. So what, who am I to argue with that? Yeah. It's, it's the credence we give to these systems as well as the um, how they work. And of course, yeah. the, these are commercial systems, so the, the company involved is not prepared to uh, to share the algorithm. It, 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 it's, it's entirely identical, isn't it, with the more simplified products. So say taking contract automation, for example, you spent 100 hours drafting this perfectly coded document and you've applied an error. A human error because you, because you wrote it in the first place mm. you then go off into the sunset drafting these things and you you're duplicating this error 100 200,000 times mm. over the course of the next decade because you're not applying thought anymore so and 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 and, and this is a point i think that, that there will still be room for educated young lawyers to apply a measure of thought and 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 their their art to the work of law moving away from technology I, I do think that part of the part of the role of the lawyer is quite is artistic as well as formulaic that's just is that is that the, the point that nigel made there is that a, a general problem in ai that if you uh, take the united states sentencing example he gave a load of right-wing judges give this 
uh, verdict, the left-wing ones gives that, you kind of average it out and you come out at what would be a, a reasonable mean. But is that a problem generally in AI that you're reliant on past data, which is, is of course itself a product of human biases and prejudices of various uh, uh, Of course. Machines, uh, machines correct for it. Uh, and I mean, you call it bias. Uh, the, the machine cannot uh, detect if it's a bias. What it sees is that there is a certain uh, nature to the uh, to the data set um, it works with. Uh, so the problem is not so much that we face biases in all uh, contexts uh, we can possibly imagine. Uh, and uh, I would say the worst biasing machine is actually are actually humans. Yeah, I mean, computers uh, <laughs> generates uh, far less bias. Uh, it uh, if applied in a certain way, you can capture and freeze uh, historical human bias. Um, and because it ends up and that is where I think uh, currently the problem is, is once you fed the data into the machine, you have no more access to it, you, you cannot find the one record that has introduced a certain error uh, within the model, you, you have to redo the model itself. Um, but what if um, building the model, so like, for example, there is this um, famous uh, GPT-3 text model that is currently, uh, I think, even in newspapers, um, uh, that does wonderful things. Uh, but you don't have to forget, uh, it costs about $10 million to compute that model once. Yeah? So, and it takes a couple of weeks while spending $10 million. Um, so if uh, within the basically data collection that that machine was trained on, you want to find the five records that introduce a bias for a certain use case, uh, and these are all floating point numbers, yeah, uh, representing some weights between uh, two specific neuro uh, artificial neurons in the model. So that's nothing a human could ever relate to. And that is the problem of the bias, uh, because if you have uh, 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 humans facing human bias, then you can have countermeasures. You can reevaluate certain things. You can argue. Uh, all of that is not possible currently. Um, with the technologies we have in AI because we cannot drill down into the data once we have ingested it. Mm -hmm. So, for example, um, uh, at Cortical, we, have, uh, we are focusing a lot on, on this aspect so that every model, even if it's ready computed, uh, you can still uh, drill down to the very sentence uh, that it was uh, trained on. Um, and, and it's worth the effort because uh, like that, you can actually continuously improve. You can find unwanted pieces of data and eliminate them or correct them. Uh, and like that, it behaves more like an actual human who sort of learns from errors and tries not to do them again. Um, so I think it's a, mostly a technical um, constraint for now. We've had an interesting observation by a member of the, the audience here, uh, Jessel Ranuka, who says that maths is only an abstract of reality with limitations and assumptions, hence it is explainable and interruptible. And she goes on to say, judges will ask how I made the decision and, and why. So the, the machine, because it's based on mathematics and mathematics is explainable, it's interruptible. Actually, I think she's saying to us um, that it's that it's it's an AI bias detection machine. In fact, it can be, mm. which is an interesting observation. It could um, be. Uh, 
Well, I, I should like that idea. Yeah, but you can you you can use mathematics um, to formulate um, sort of transcendental things. Also, that's precisely the power of mathematics. That uh, mathematics don't care what you model with. Uh, it can be uh, I don't know the beauty of a painting, and you can derive certain formula that will allow a certain approach um, um, to the facts. Uh, so I I think in the end. There is nothing that brains can do that we will not at some point be able uh, to do artificially in the sense of using uh, uh, computational devices. Uh, but again, that still is only half of the job because that's just a thinking job. Uh, and there is still uh, the communication job to be done. Uh, and if in the end uh, the information has to reach a human, um, there needs to be communication with a human. And uh, I think there will be, there will never be anything better than a human to communicate with a human because they have grown for that. Yeah. Um, uh, and, and that's where um, I think we need to go. We have to make, uh, uh, to use machines for things that can be computed. And we have to use uh, humans for things uh, that have to be communicated. And the whole thing gives a network, uh, basically connecting all of us and our entities that we create like companies or or countries or whatever i think just the one has really is hit the the nub of the issue in terms of the economics of the law moving forward if these machines are capable in effect if you're wrong francisco that actually that the uh, and nathan the the human being in the end is is redundant in this fully developed model that legal knowledge becomes fully commoditized any value you can add to it is the occasional correction of errors in exactly the way you were describing Francisco going right down to the to the particular sentence and so at that point if legal knowledge is completely commoditized you don't need human beings it's a it, it, it's just another story of how technology has uh, has destroyed a, a a way of making a living isn't it and uh, <laughs> it, it's I'm, I'm wondering you know, like your like sort of buggy whip makers or the stagecoach makers when the car came along. Mm. Well, I think that um, the way I think about this, there are certain domains like medicine where you could see, in principle, that a system that's trained on millions of cases could become a better eye surgeon or better diagnose, but better diagnose. Radiology is a very good example of that. It's just reading digital images. Yeah. So there, where there is actually a right answer. Is this, are there cancerous cells here at a, at a dangerous level or not? These are ultimately answerable questions. And that's exactly what a consultant would be looking for. Maybe the system can actually do the same thing, but better. Mm-hmm. But the law, as Nathan said earlier, is a social construct. So for example, we, we determine how various rights are to be balanced. We, we craft our Declaration of Human Rights or our code of company law, uh, who bears the relative risk, what's best for um, a function of society or, or the, the economy or whatever. And But it also, as Francisco, Francisco said, inevitably it's got cultural values embedded in it to a greater or lesser degree. I don't think many people would actually want a purely technocratic code of law, um, particularly in areas like you mentioned earlier, Dominic, about uh, children's rights and so on. Um, you may, once you've determined the, 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 the appropriate balance, you might then be able to leave the system to determine case by case. 
how do I now apply these principles and laws? Um, yeah, but maybe it, uh, law by itself could become to some degree um, obsolete as a surfacing entity because uh, um, if you did something which was uh, against a certain law uh, might result in a fine and the fine might be automatically recuperated from your account. Uh, mm -hmm. So you might not even notice anymore that you have been in contact with sort of a legal machine in the background, yeah. uh, uh, but everything just um, operated uh, normally. I think uh, the only special part, if you want, uh, uh, are things like maybe criminal law and so on, where the human factor again became mm -hmm. part um, of the thing. Uh, that's like uh, in you compared it to the field of medicine. Um, I personally think that most of what doctors do today uh, will be better implemented in software. So I, I keep uh, joking by saying uh, in 10 years, I will only accept uh, an artificial doctor when it's about my diagnosis. <laughs> um, but uh, the point I, I, I would make here is uh, let's say I have a certain diagnosis and then I need to go and have a treatment uh, where I would actually need a human who has uh, healthcare training is the person who helps me uh, step from one treatment site to the other talking to me and uh, uh, trying to sort of uh, get me positive uh, and so on so that interaction is something no computer could give me that feeling and that satisfaction of talking to someone about my problem. Yeah. But the uh, one minute 20 time I have sitting in front of a doctor uh, trying to uh, stutter out uh, the description of my pain um, that could be easily replaced by a, a machine that takes a, a bunch of samples of me and just outputs with like 99.9% uh, precision based on everything that has been ever published <laughs> stuff mm. that no human could do, could do yeah and I, I think that correlates or could correlate to some degree also with with um, the legal domain that there is a large body of activities that we just do because we are humans we have to do it that way but uh, I, I can tell Francisco by the fact you need a human to, to make you feel good about yourself. You've never owned a Tamagotchi, obviously. <laughs> um, but I remember it. I'm of the generation to remember Tamagotchi. <laughs> I, I, um, uh, we've had another uh, a question here. What's the future regulation and rules on, on AI implementation? Um, which is a kind of, which is a very big question uh, covering the whole field, I suppose. But um, maybe the best way to answer it, and Nathan, I'm sure you've got a view on this, is that is, that, is this actually a promising area of new law for people about how we govern implementation of AI? I, I, well, I think largely it's a question to ask us again in the early part of 2022. Uh -huh. um, we're waiting a white paper from the UK government following their national strategy that was released in September. European Union is going in a slightly different direction, maybe a bit more codified. I think that the UK government is thinking about maybe repurposing some of the legislation we currently have in place. So the answer is don't know. Um, but it will become it will become become more clear in the coming months. It's sooner rather than later, I think. Mm -hmm. Unless Nigel is familiar with something I'm not. <laughs> no, I, I think it, um, there is an inherent problem, I think, with regulation. But let's wait and see what, what they come out with. But it, 
um, you could freeze things in time. That, that you're tackling the problem as you understand it today, and the problem will mutate. The um, systems, um, if, if the system is just looking for correlations, um, now, this is something that was tried in the States. They, they, um, there are all sorts of laws against bias. Um, so that if you have humans um, looking at cases, they have to, they know what steps that they're allowed, they, they must take. They know the things they're not allowed to take into consideration. You can tell a system, you mustn't look for protected characteristics. You mustn't look for um, sex, race, um, economic background, etc when you're considering whether to give a loan, for example, or whether to pay a claim. But if the system looks for correlations, then it, and it ingests huge amount of data from social media and so on, then it will actually find correlates for the things it's not meant to look for. And um, that, so I think it's, even with the best intentioned laws, it's gonna be really difficult to, uh, to bring this to heel. The comment here is we can't use AI for this as we don't understand how AI comes to its decisions. But just very quickly, we're into our last five minutes here, Francisco. Is this fear of a black box society, this, this regulations which Nathan has referred to coming into play, is that actually forming a constraint on the development of AI technologies yet? I, I think that uh, the black box approach um, is just due to the very early stage we're in. Yeah? Um, and uh, uh, so we have discovered um, a new computational method uh, and anything uh, technologically complex enough uh, can be regarded by the uneducated observer as being magic. Uh, and that is scary in certain domains. Um, but I think uh, uh, if you look uh, sort of at the evolution of other technologies, uh, it's there are phases and once it it can only go into commodity when we overcome this so there will be a generation let's say of uh, AIs in the some somewhere in the future that will not be uh, a black box uh, precisely um, and uh, the other thing is if we get there uh, that's uh, regarding the previous question uh, we will definitely need uh, regulation so probably many of the peers uh, in my um, um, commercial uh, uh, ecosystem will not agree with me, uh, but I'm one of the, let's say, rare AI um, uh, protagonists who uh, claims regulation. I think uh, any uh, dangerous technology, dangerous in the sense that you cannot afford to make errors. Uh, so like with dangerous chemicals, for example, uh, if you have a business that transports dangerous chemicals, you have a very strict sort of framework um, by which you can do this. And as long as you stick to it, you can do whatever um, is needed to do. Um, and uh, as we see um, in, in, in recent days, um, influence of machine learning on elections and the like uh, can have huge impact. So I don't think we can let this just grow uh, by um, um, sort of business uh, opportunism. Uh, we have as a society uh, to regulate it at least until it's more sort of the, the, the way like we want it to be. Okay, we must, uh, we, we've got about, we've only got a minute left. So I, I think we, I think it's a very good point Francisco is making. Actually, that's like really good news for lawyers. Actually, the industry needs to be regulated and these laws around it. So there's more work, work for you, for you all in that. But before we 
before we go, I'd like to give you each of you a, just an opportunity to give us one last comment. Obviously, you know, the four of us sitting here are kind of signed up to, to, to AI as a positive thing, probably in law on the whole, and you guys are making use of it. There'll be people out there who have a completely the opposite view. What's your um, your sense, Nigel? And I'll ask the same question of you, uh, Nathan, and you, Francisco. What's your sense of, of where the law is as a profession as a whole? Uh, is it alive to this threat and this opportunity and wants to adapt to it and sees possibility to create new types of firm, new businesses, as Nathan was describing right at the outset, or is there a great deal more fear than greed and, and, and hope? I think it's more uh, towards the, the, the latter end. I think the, 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 where I see law firms adopting AI, and there's some big adoption, there's some really big investment in AI. I think it's more about trying to maintain broadly the same way of doing things, but, but doing it better. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think there is what's coming, I don't know where from, will be the disruptive models where, where new players, perhaps not even um, led by lawyers, will will seek to use AI to disrupt the system. And where I think that perhaps the first end that might be uh, exactly where it's needed, which is the democratization of law and making it much, much more affordable for uh, starting with um, simpler cases. Mm -hmm. So, Nathan, you heard Nigel say it's a lot of lawyers are thinking about this of doing what we do now, but do it better and, and making democratizing the law, making it available to more people and so on. But you spoke very eloquently at the outset about how you can actually reinvent law as a business by using AI. That's what excites you. I, I it, it does excite me. I couldn't agree more with Nigel, by the way. Um, and I think that part of doing things better is reimagining how we do things currently. And I don't think that clients want or expect us to, for example, go off and draft a contract from scratch, pulling in lots of precedents. I think they want something a bit more sophisticated than that. Mm -hmm. I don't think that lawyers are unnecessarily worried. I think that our profession is quite dynamic and progressive, generally speaking. We're one of, not the, but one of the oldest professions and we'll be around for a bit longer, <laughs> I think. Mr. Um, Jake, <laughs> <laughs> So um, we'll be okay, but but you know, like like we're we're not we we don't have some special status where we shouldn't be disrupted, and I don't think that we should be blind to that fact. And we will be disrupted. We need to move with it. And generally speaking, I think the profession is doing that. You can't go on social media without seeing law firms posting what new novel ideas they're coming out with to impress their clients. And clients are increasingly demanding this as part of all of our pitch engagements anyway. So unless you've got good answers to these things, you're no longer competing in the market. So our, our hands are forced. Even if we didn't want to do this, we have to. That's where we are. Francisco, a last word from you then. Are you, when you talk to, to clients in the legal profession, is it about how they can carry on doing what they're doing more efficiently? I can make your business more profitable if you like. Or is it about you could totally reinvent and reimagine how you do law and what the law does? Which of those uh, conversations are you having most? Well, I think this is directly correlated to what I would call uh, the, the the maturity in terms of machine learning of the company uh, we speak to. So uh, there are um, astonishingly coherent phases in the in the development of a, of an organization by adopting AI, um, and uh, as so very often, the very first steps uh, tend to be very painful, and you fall over a, a number of times. Uh, but you just have uh, to keep trying. 
Um, and I think there are programmatic um, aha effects uh, that happen as um, an organization or a company learns uh, uh, on the possibilities. Yeah, so it's like a uh, uh, and forgive me the uh, the thing. It's it's like a child that learns to walk. Yeah. So f the first steps are more worrying about hitting something, um, and then suddenly uh, you realize ah, I can move my body around uh, in the world, and that changes everything. Yeah. Um, and so that could maybe from today be characterized as a disruption. I just think it's just evolution, like everything else. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Francisco. And I'd love to continue this discussion, but sadly, our, our time is now up. I'd like to thank our panelists, Nigel Brook from Clyde & Co, Nathan Evans from Harrison Clark Rickabees, and Francisco Weber from Cortical.io. Thank you also to our audience for your uh, very interesting, stimulating questions and comments. And it's goodbye from the four of us.